Thank you so much for supporting our preaching workshop at Graymere in 2022. You can find all of our videos and presentations and even materials at graymere.com slash preaching workshop. This was our second session of the day with Mark Blackwelder, who spoke to us on preaching through the book of Ephesians. This was recorded February 28th, 2022. All right, thank you, Andrew. Um, I feel like I need to start with an explanation. Uh, first of all, it is so weird to be the old guy <laughs> that your students are running the show and making these presentations and exceeding you, and they refer back to you as if that, we don't understand that that means you're old. Um, I told somebody earlier, there are a number of things that are impossible for me, and the number of things continues to get greater. The most recent on the list is, it is now impossible for me to die young. Uh, so, uh, but Jeremy made reference to the fact that today I gave him permission to call me Mark. Now, first of all, I never forbade him to call me Mark. We haven't had a lot of interaction over the last 20 years or so since he has been gone from Free Hardin. But the reason why I think that is on his mind is because when uh, we were living in Slovakia, I went and took a course at Comenius University on how to speak Slovak. And the course was designed essentially to prepare people who were going to go to medical school and needed a crash course. And so I spent five months, five hours a day, five days a week studying Slovak, and my teacher didn't speak English. Uh, we learned to speak Slovak the way, as it turns out, we learned to speak our first language, and that is by building concepts and naming things and describing what was around us and things like that. I had a fantastic teacher. Her name, as we were able to call her, was Pani Kovacikova. Okay? And Pani Kovacikova was, a, was just an outstanding teacher. And, I never, and we went through this five-month course, and at the end of it, there were three of us left. I'm not going to tell you how many of us started, but three of us finished. Uh, and so she took us to the teacher's break room. And there is a phenomenon in many languages that doesn't exist in English. Uh, we see it in Spanish and other languages that are more familiar to you, perhaps, than Slovak are, is. But the phenomenon uh, is that you use plural forms to refer to people that you want to speak to more formally. And so uh, in Slovak, that manifests itself as... Uh, Tikanie and vikanie. Tikanie means you could speak to somebody and very familiar, use first person pronouns, things like that, and, and forms of verbs. Uh, and then vikanie is what you do for those, if you're speaking to a group, but you also use that same kind of form to talk to somebody who's higher in status than you. And so throughout, she was teaching us both those forms. I was too thick to realize what she was doing, but she was teaching us both those forms by allowing us to speak to each other using those familiar singular forms, but we were to address her using the plural forms because she was in a position of status over us. And so we did that throughout. And I'll never forget the day she took us to the teacher's break room and she served us tea and she says, Terras mojimetikach. Now we can speak using these singular forms. I thought I was going to cry. It was such a powerful moment. She was saying, we're on the same level, you and I. That distance that has been intentionally created for the sake of instruction, I'm removing that distance. And so today, I told Jeremy, Jeremy, today we can, we can speak less formally. I should have done that years ago. If I'd have known he was thinking about it, I would have. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great thing to be able to study Scripture, and I am incredibly impressed with this gathering I told Andrew just a few moments ago uh, to get a group of 
mostly preachers together uh, to talk about preaching. Uh, that's, a, that's pretty close to nirvana uh, for, for me. I love this. I'm going to tell you something else that happened this past year. Speaking of I, almost simultaneously realizing how old you are and yet feeling like a kid, this semester I am teaching Prep and Dell. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Billy Smith course for most of you. Some of you are old enough, it's the Tom Holland course. I'm, gonna, I'm trying not to look at anybody in particular to accuse you of being that old. Uh, but I'm teaching that class after he's been taught for like 34 years every single time by Billy Smith. And so it's neat to be able to talk about preaching to, and I'll, I'll call them kids uh, from my perspective, very, very young people who are just beginning, who, who've never really delivered yet a full-length sermon. And then today to talk about preaching with people who've made their lives in doing that, and any one of whom could stand up here and take over right now and do as good or better job than I am of talking about the book of Ephesians, it's a great thing, and I appreciate you and love you so much uh, for the devotion that you have to the task of proclaiming the gospel. May God bless us all. So, Ephesians. Um, if I... I'm just curious if you'll allow me. I know we've got a Q&A later on, but I want to go ahead and ask a Q right now. Uh, if I ask you, uh, give me one word. Give me one word about Ephesians. What would your word be? Church. That was the first one on my list too, right? Uh, not that the other books in the New Testament, the other things that are part of the Pauline corpus, don't deal with life in the church, but Paul really appears to approach this from the perspective that we want to know how to emphasize the value and power of what happens in the church, right? And so it's a great study for that reason. It's incredibly relevant, especially for the kind of, you know, let me pause here, draw a parenthesis and say, I'm not crazy about the word audience uh, because it seems to suggest sort of a passive relationship between a communicator and the other people who are gathered in the room. So I want to do things like substitute the word listeners, which of course means audience. It comes from the same idea, right? So, but, but I just feel a little bit better about that because listening seems to be more of an active kind of participating where audience seems to be all about whether or not the you know, the, the physical elements inside the ear are functioning. I want a little more than that, and so do you. But we have, um, we have people who are gathered with us, most of whom are in the church. Now, I wish, as a matter of fact, I would love it if every Sunday when I gathered, there were 50 or 60 non-Christians in there that I could talk to. But those are not the people who are gathering. And maybe that's good because they, would, could, they could not possibly appreciate what goes on as the people of God gather if they are not a part of that. So one of my primary uh, rules for preaching is you need to preach to the people who show up, right? And so if, if they're not dealing with that issue, why are you talking about it? Okay, yeah. Why do, if those people don't, don't know anything about what's happening over that, that this false doctrine is being promulgated in this particular place, if that's not happening in your congregation, why are you talking about that now? Let me pause and say, sometimes you have to ready people for what might be. 
Okay, so I'm not saying there's no place to do that, but most of our preaching ought to be devoted to talking about the kinds of things that those people need to hear. They need to hear Ephesians. All right, they need to hear Ephesians because it tells us what Christians who want to constitute the church of our Lord need to be thinking about. So, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about how we approach preaching Ephesians. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide this up, at least in terms of structure, in terms of recognizing how we might preach context and then how we preach uh, the text itself and then the theology or the ideas that are a part of that. So let's talk about preaching context. And first of all, let me, let, me, let me tell you something that you probably know but maybe don't think about. You are a nerd about the Bible, right? You're a Bible nerd, okay? You, you can't get enough of this stuff. I'm tearing up the remote control here. Uh, you, you know, you, you delve deeply into all of these contextual issues, and it is fascinating, enthralling to you. And you know what it's like for a lot of people who are sitting in the pew? You know, they, they, just, they zone out pretty quickly with all the details. So here's my first point. When we're talking about these things, it's important to make sure that listeners understand why it matters. This is not trivia, okay? Now, I'm a trivia kind of guy. I remember one time walking through the, the lobby at the Estes Church of Christ, and my friend Jim Edmonds, who taught business at Freed Hardeman for many, many years, some of you might know him, great guy, I love him, I miss him. Uh, I overheard just in passing, it's interesting how you just at the right place at the right time, maybe. Uh, and Jim, this is back during the days when that show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was on TV with Regis Philbin, you remember that show? Jim said to whoever he was talking to, if I were ever on that show, I'd want Mark Blackwelder to be one of my phone of friends. I was so impressed till he finished the sentence by saying, because that man knows more useless information than anybody I've ever known in my life. <laughs> yeah. This is not about, this ought not be about useless information. We need to make sure that people understand the connection. You are, in a sense, as I'm saying here, uh, dropping pins in to kind of establish where things take place and what was going on in those moments. And you're going to come back to those later on. I, I like it when someone is preaching through a book or whatever and they've made some references to contextual matters and then they come back and say, hey, you see why this matters now? See, if you just mention all this stuff and lay a, a background there, but then don't come back and revisit those things as you work your way through the text, it was essentially window dressing. And you don't want to do that. You want to ask questions related to context and come back and answer them as you say, this is why this is a big deal for the hearers. This is, this is why this thing we're talking about doctrinally, theologically, uh, in whatever other way, this is why the people there would have thought that was really, really important. Because if we can establish why they would think it is important, then maybe we can understand what are the intersections to the sorts of things that we're experiencing today. So we ask these questions. What unique elements exist uh, in the church at Ephesus? And we'll talk some about that as we go through. What intersections exist? Uh, for example, intertextuality of various kinds in its New Testament sense. Uh, what's going on in, in Colossians and Ephesians that leads to 519 and 316, right? Why does that show up in both those places in these two letters, which are in some respects different and yet other respects the same? So when we're preaching the context, we want to talk about those sorts of things. 
<clears throat> now, so let's talk a little bit about the way we might approach this with Ephesus. I really appreciate Jeremy putting Ephesus up on the front on the first slide. I thought he was going to do a lot of my homework for me, and then he had abandoned me. He went to talking about Galatians, but uh, Ephesus is in Asia Minor. I appreciate Jeremy putting the map up there that showed the relative proximity between the seven churches of Asia that we read about there and the southern Galatia uh, that I'll have to agree with him. I hate to agree with him, but Jeremy, are you still here? Did he leave after he found out I was speaking? Anyway, uh, you know, I, yeah, these, these things are not that far apart in some respects, but one of the things that you know is that as much as Paul was an outsider at Galatia, He's much more of an insider at Ephesus, right? He spent a significant block of time there during his ministry. And so he's been there. Uh, he's addressing this area. And then that there's in the, also there's this tension with the fact that uh, we've got Paul addressing Ephesus, but it's John who appears to have a much more intimate relationship with not only that place, Ephesus, where he spent the waning years of his life, but also writing to the seven churches of Asia early in the book of Revelation. So those things matter. Now, here's the map, and Ephesus is shown right here on the edge of Asia Minor and uh, Galatian. And, uh, but just, boy, you thought about how much goes on right here? You take a look at some of the names that are there, on some of the town names on the, in that little thing that juts out right there. You've got the seven churches of Asia there on the west side. You go a little further over, you've got Galatia, you've got Cappadocia there. You start hearing Places that Paul addresses in 1 Peter, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So all that stuff is, an, is a hotbed for what's happening in the church in the middle part of the first century. So it's a pagan city. You know, we, we talk some about the tension that exists between Paul and the Jews and Paul and the Gentiles. Here you've got a guy whose who's, uh, primary mission, as stated in the accounts that we read about of his confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus in those three places. Uh, you know, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles, and yet he's persistently got this interaction going on with the Jews. The diaspora of Jews outside of Judea means that you're continuing to encounter them no matter where you go, it seems like, in greater or lesser ways. This particular place where we're talking about does it or does not have a synagogue. Obviously, Ephesus does, but they are also a center of pagan worship. They've got the temple of Artemis or Diana there. And you remember Acts chapter 19 and how much of a uh, ruckus that caused. All that stuff is a part of the landscape. Uh, he is going back and spending blocks of time with this congregation. All that has something to do with how Paul is able to talk to the Ephesians. He's going to talk to the Ephesians differently than he talks to the Galatians, right? Because he's got a relationship there, because he has passed through there several different times. We know of the very intimate and personal way in Acts chapter 20 that he talks to the Ephesian elders as he anticipates perhaps that his ministry is going to be stopped by death at somewhere down the line. They cried, and he has to stop, stop your blubbering. That's the New Revised Mark Blackwilder translation. Uh, stop your blubbering. The word blubbering never appears in any of the ancient manuscripts. But nonetheless, you know, you see something of a relationship there that really affects the way that the book of Corinthians works. So you put those two things together. You've got this heavy emphasis on the church, but you've also got intimate personal relationships that Paul is leveraging as he talks about these kinds of things. It affects the personality of the letter. And I really think as we preach this, we need to acknowledge those kinds of things and allow those to speak. I'll come back to that later. My wife tells me I use that phrase a lot. We'll come back to that later. Uh, 
I'll tell her I'll get back with her later on that. Okay, so let's talk about the letter itself. Um, you know, have you, you guys have noticed this, right? That Paul, there's a common formula in Paul's letter writing. Theological letter writing is what we have. Um, and the formula is basically, let me talk to you for a while about God. And then let me talk to you about what you're supposed to do because you know that, right? And that's just very, very common. But what's interesting about the book of Ephesians is how long that first section is. Sometimes Paul, um, he never fails to include both of those things. But sometimes he includes it in what some uh, preaching authors would call an embedded form. You know, kind of like we, we put our application. You can either wait till the very end and say, ta-da, do this. Or you can, as you go, include various points of application that connect to the particular theology or doctrine or whatever else that you might be examining the book is. Well, sometimes Paul does that with his, see what God did, now you do this. See what God did, now you do this. Or you think this, or you be this. Uh, in this case, look how long that first section is. Now, it's a little deceptive because it looks like it's 50-50, which is not really true. Uh, it is the first three chapters, and Paul really helps us out by giving us a therefore at the beginning of chapter, th chapter 4, right? But chapters 1 through 3 are not as long as chapters 4 through 6, but they are powerfully important. God's greatness is highlighted both in terms of who He is and what He's done. And Paul will not stop that until he is sure that what comes next will be seen as a clear progression out of that reality. Now, let, here's why I'm working this so hard right now. For us as preachers, can I just tell you, in my early years of preaching, I just hammered brothers and sisters about what they ought to do. Now, I believe that accusations that have been made against preaching in churches of Christ, that we preached works-based salvation, that we didn't believe in grace, I believe those are unfounded. I remember hearing about grace when I was growing up, and I grew up a long time before some of you. Uh, it, we didn't just discover grace in the last 20 years. But if you listen to our preaching, I think I understand why those accusations were made. We just spent so much time talking about what we're supposed to do. Now, in one sense, that's appropriate. If you take all of the language in the New Testament that is about what, we're, what we as Christians are supposed to do, if you take all that stuff out, the New Testament will be a pamphlet. All right, there's a lot there. Why? Because God already did what God needed to do. What's still undone is what needs to be done in our lives. It's what God wants to do. I think about this the way that I think about what Luke does in Luke Acts. As the book of Luke opens up, Luke explains his, uh, his methodology for gathering information and writing that letter. Uh, and he says, uh, in, as Acts, Acts opens up, in my first epistle, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he began to describe the context of that. And then he says, by implication, now, I wanted you to know not all that everybody else did, but everything that Jesus continued to do and to teach through His designated apostles. Uh, so it's really the acts of Jesus, the act of the Holy Spirit, uh, operationalized in the lives of these people. Well, what the New Testament does is to tell us what God has done, what Jesus has done, and then 
to tell us what he still wants to do, right? And the way that Paul structured this, I think, helps us in that regard. Let's take a look at what God has done. Now let's think about what he wants to do in us, in his church, in his people. Especially, I think, acute, given the supreme place of Jesus Christ in the book and the church pictured as his body. There is no disconnect between the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of Jesus in his church. There's a persistent unity and harmony there. So, chapters 1 through 3, look at what God has done. Now, what does it look like to live in view of that? That's what the book of Ephesians does so well. Um, there's some language in Ephesians that needs to be ironed out. The latter part of this, if I can get the train slowed down enough in order to quit anywhere near on time, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, challenges in the book of Ephesians. And there are plenty of those. There's some wording and language there. Well, one of the things that sometimes throws people off is, is phraseology like the mystery of God. And the reason why I mention this is I think it's a good, um, a good cautionary moment for us. Um, Jeremy mentioned in his uh, presentation about sometimes our anachronistic view of things. We sometimes want to press upon some of the things that Paul is doing. A, a certain worldview that would not have existed in his time, but exists in our time. And admittedly, we, we've got to bring ourselves into this. It's difficult. We can't leave ourselves out. But uh, we think about mystery. We think about something that you don't know. But when Paul uses the term mystery, he thinks about something that people not used to not know. Uh, but they do now. And particularly here, this thing that uh, is powerful to him. And, you know, I remember when I found out I wasn't Jewish. I was very distressed by that. Because I wanted to be like Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. I'm a Gentile? What? Okay. But not being Jewish, it's difficult, I think, maybe for any of us to appreciate what a big deal it was that the Gentiles, Gentiles were in, invited to be a part of Yahweh's family. Right? I mean, because Yahweh is the Jewish God, right? Nope. There's a lot in several epistles, particularly in Romans, but uh, about that. That's a mystery. It's something that's been hinted at for years, right? If you go back and read the prophets, there's all this language. The nations will flow into it, right? But very subtle. Hints, clues are being dropped here and there. And here in the book of Ephesians, Paul's able to say, I want you to understand the mystery is solved. Here's God's big plan for all of humanity. It's bigger than we ever could possibly even have imagined. See, the Jews looked upon themselves in those moments where they did become somewhat um, active in proselytization. They looked at themselves in terms of their beneficence. Here, Gentiles, come and join us in our religion, and of which you are really not entirely an insider. But, but we'll, we'll take you in and... What Paul does in his epistles, and particularly in, in Ephesians, is to say, we, we belong on exactly the same basis because Christ our head has invited us to become a part of his body. So, you guys know the details here. Uh, 
my good brother, Doug Burleson, who not only has an office next to me, but also is my preaching partner at Estes. As a matter of fact, my son, when Doug came to preach at Estes with, after I'd been there for a while, said, Dad, I've been thinking, Doug's only going to get one day a week off from you. <laughs> Thanks, son. Uh, but Doug calls this jail mail, right? The, the, uh, the prison epistles. And I think... Again, as you preach this, this is another one of those pins you drop contextually that you need to come back and revisit regularly in your preaching because it makes a difference on how you hear some of these things. To some degree, those things that we talk about contextually, those things that are introductory in nature, they form a sort of a conduit through which the message flows. Right? It was the conduit through which it flowed at that time. And if we understand that, it affects the way that people hear this. So... Um, Here's how I outline the book. And I know outlines are fascinating, right? Uh, but what I liked about this is that it, I believe, demonstrates in a more concrete way what I talked about just a few moments ago. Look at all that God has done, and only after you appreciate that are you really ready to talk about our work. Our work is important, okay? Because we, as the body of Christ, our work is not separate from what God does. It is an extension. No, that's not a strong enough word. It is what God is doing. We ought not be patting ourselves on the back that we're all that important. Uh, it's still under the direction of the head, Jesus Christ. But note some of the powerful realities that Paul spends some time on here after his greeting. I, I, I struggle to try to come up with language that I like here. Uh, partially because almost any phrase that you appropriate has some baggage attached to it, right? But listen, you guys have heard this. I, when I was growing up, you started talking about the plan of salvation. Bing! Your hand just popped up like that, right? Uh, you know, you don't want to talk about here, believe, repent, confess. Well, I began to appropriate this language of the plan of salvation years ago to think about what God has been doing since the beginning of time, since the fall in the garden. To think of that is the that's the plan of salvation. Um, the term "scheme of redemption" as I'm appropriating here, you know, Paul just kind of zooms out and looks at these big ideas that are powerful and pivotal in what God is doing, has done, and is doing to get us to the point where we can come into His presence. Um, I'm going to give you a spoiler right now. I'm going to come back at the end of this thing, and I'm going to talk about how Paul closes Ephesians. And I want you to notice something really interesting when we get to that point. But take a, kind of get this list in your mind of what Paul is doing, especially in the early part of the book. Uh, by the way, famously, as you well know, uh, this section, chapter 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is, is one of Paul's run-on sentences, it appears. Uh, he makes it really difficult for us to outline any other way other than we do because there's only like six sentences in the entire book of Ephesians. Uh, okay, may maybe ten. Uh, I mean, he just keeps going. His use of participles is magical, right, as he just kind of stitches all these things together. He is leading us through his epiphany of sorts. Uh, interesting word in his case because he has experienced such an epiphany as this on at least two occasions, if I understand it correctly. There's a Damascus epiphany, and then there's the Arabia epiphany where he says he got information that prevented him from having to take secondhand words 
to establish the veracity of his claims. But his revealing of all these kinds of things, <clears throat> the way that he does, is something that we need to respect. That's my, that's my last slide, which I hopefully will get to, uh, is how do we respect Ephesians? Okay? But Paul's prayer for the church, uh, Paul continues to erupt in prayer throughout this book. Uh, I want to pray like that. I don't want to pray a designated prayer. I don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to pray before my meals and in the beginning of our worship service and at the end of worship service and when we've got uh, the Lord's Supper to interact with and prayer is right on all those occasions. But prayer is a spontaneous thing for the Apostle Paul, particularly remarkable because he's writing them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's, you, clearly there's this, I've, I've almost contradicted myself when I talk about these two aspects of the way that Paul approaches Ephesians. First of all, there's this purposefulness that causes him to write in such a way that you must respect his movement in the book or else be completely confused. On the other hand, there's this spontaneity where he's talking, all of a sudden he just says, God, you know, thank you for this or be with these people or help us in this situation. So, that's, a, that's something about the book of Ephesians that I think is not the main thing on display, but it's really, really powerful. Uh, <clears throat> okay, can I just tell you, I'm not sure if you're even allowed to have a favorite place in the Bible. But if, Lord help me, Ephesians 2 is my favorite place in the Bible. I love that. And I'll come back to that as an exemplar in just a little while. But this exaltation of God's grace that we read about in that passage of Scripture we need, to be, we need to be coming back to that over and over and over again. It's, it's a beautiful thing, what Paul does in that situation. Um, to quote my wife, I'll come back to that later. All right. <clears throat> the role of Jesus Christ as our reconciler. Um, Doug and I are preaching through the book of Colossians on Sunday nights right now. And we're in, I don't know how long it'll take us to get out of Colossians chapter 1, but we're not there yet. Uh, but there, that same kind of language is used, right, in verses 19 through 23, Christ is our peace. And I think that's a difficult thing for us to get our head wrapped around, considering how we as Western North Americans think about peace. Uh, so different than the way that the ancients would have thought about peace. But nonetheless, Christ is our peace. And then, here's this stuff comes. This mystery revealed. God intends to show a full measure of grace to the Gentiles. And again, this is one of the challenges of preaching some New Testament books, including Ephesians, is that we are so far separated from the curtains opening on this that it seems very much passe at this point. Well, of course He did. Of course God has allowed the Gentiles to experience a full measure of His grace. As we preach these things, I think one of the great challenges we have is connecting people to just what a remarkable thing some of these things are. What, what was it like to live for years being taunted by, I'm not saying the Jews actually did this, though some might have, being taunted by the Jews because you're not us. You can't have what we've got. We're not even authorized to give it to you. And now Paul says all these distinctions go away as a result of the surpassing love of Christ. Now Paul spends three chapters, as we have them now, 
just extolling the virtue of the person and work of God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> First application for today's presentation. If you are not doing that, you need to repent and get with it. If people do not leave your sermons thinking, God is fantastic, then you're not doing it right. And I, I, exhibit A at the front, I have not done that right. I've been so eager, so eager to get to the application that, you know, what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do that I have not spent the time? And one of the things I love about the book of Ephesians, even more so than his other works, is that Paul is patient with this. Do you reckon there are things that the Ephesians needed to do? Well, we know there are. We've got three chapters worth of stuff. He doesn't even... I mean, you look through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians and tell me what it is that Christians are supposed to do. There's almost nothing in there. About the closest he gets to it, is in 2.10 where he says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And we're saying, like... He just moves on. He, he wants to talk about God and how great God is and what God has done in Jesus Christ. He wants to talk about the Spirit of God and how the Spirit of God is at work in our world. And as we preach this book, I, one of the things I like about the book of Ephesians and preaching is it forces us to do this. It forces us to take a lot of time to talk about what God is doing. The only difficult part is the invitation. Because we hadn't kicked them in the pants, so we're not exactly sure what we need to tell them to do. Well, I'll tell you what we need to tell them to do. We need to tell them to love and appreciate the work of God more. But, first three chapters then, extolling the virtues of God and the things that God has already done that are prefaces to any response that we might make to Him. Then, we move into chapter 4. And again, like I said, you got the word therefore, which starts that, based on everything that has been, here are some things that we need to work on. <clears throat> okay, the challenge in the first half of preaching through Ephesians is going to be the fact that we don't have a lot of activities. You know, kids, people who teach little bitty kids you know, they got the lesson and they got the activities and they spend a lot of time thinking about those things. Well, we do something very similar. Uh, we call our activities application, right? And the application doesn't show up as much in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So, hard part here is thinking about how this gets practical. And sometimes you may have to say things like, we'll come back to that later. But anyway, uh, the second half of this, the challenge there is not to forget this. Uh, it's easy at the beginning. When you're preaching Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 16, it's fresh on your mind. Look what God has done and how that affects my life. By the time you get to some of this other stuff later on, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, we're talking about the home and things like that. Now, Paul helps us with that because he reminds us of the relationship of the home between Christ and His church. But it's easy to leave this behind. Don't leave that behind. Find some way in every lesson to feature the works of God, the person and works of God, and then come back and say, okay, and here's where, this is the reason I arranged this on the, on the page the way that it is. I want you to say, 
Uh, <clears throat> Ephesians 4. We've got all the ones there. We've got the, the things that God has appointed, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Uh, and they're supposed to behave in ways that build up the body because of this. All right? And then we talk about putting on the new self. We do that because of this. So you just keep coming back to this. I mean, you can't come back to all of it. It's three chapters worth. But you want to remind me, if I'm sitting among the listeners in that room, you want to remind me what, how these, each of these connect to the person and work of God in Jesus Christ. So each one of these things uh, has those kinds of connections. And this is, this is the area of Ephesians where we, it's, it's so practical, it's so well suited to people like me. I'm a mechanic. Uh, my dad was a mechanic. His dad was a mechanic. His dad was a mechanic. I'm not sure how far back that goes. Everybody, in my, I'm the first person in my family to ever go to college. Uh, I'm, I'm more comfortable, I was more comfortable on a tractor than I was behind a pulpit. You know, I just, that's my background. And so it's easy for me to camp out over here. And some of you guys may not be children of mechanics, but you still, you're still more comfortable on this side of the screen because we're doers, right? We, we, want to, we, want, we want a mission that is clearly articulated. We want to accomplish that mission. We're task-oriented. We we, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm picturing calf ropers. You know, they, they take off out of the gate, rope the calf, put it down, throw it, tie its legs together, and go. <laughs> That's what we want to do in preaching, right? This is, this is the Western equivalent to a mic drop, you know, where you, you just do that and then you say, there ain't nothing else to say. It's over. But you can't do that because these things are connected to powerful spiritual realities that must constantly be featured or you're doing an injustice to the very intention of all of this. So, Let's take a look at the book. These, this is known well to you, so I'm not going to belabor any of this. Uh, as Paul introduces the book, he does so in a very formulaic way, virtually formulaic. If you spread the book, rest of Paul's letters, you see a lot of familiar territory here. Um, <clears throat> he affirms his own apostleship. Interesting, right? Since he ought not have to do this, he's been with them. There are other times that Paul spends a great deal of time doing this, either because he is unfamiliar or less familiar to his audience. I've got to believe all Christians have heard about Paul uh, by you know, 20 years or so out. But nonetheless, or because he's going to have to rake them over the coals and he reminds them why he's got the authority to do that. I think about what he does in the Corinthian correspondences, for example. But he shouldn't necessarily have to do that here. But... He does. He affirms his apostleship by the will of God. Uh, he, he addresses them as saints. Not quite as remarkable as his intention to do that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. They're a mess. And yet he still refers to them as God's holy ones. Okay, But here he wants, I think largely because of this uh, persistent focus on the church as the gathered people of God and, his, 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 and as His hands in the world. Uh, he connects this to faithfulness in Christ. And then the grace and peace greeting so characteristic of Paul. Uh, don't want to make too much out of this, but the, 
the, uh, the origin of these two concepts and their consistent use in the Gentile and Jewish work or the Greek or Hellenistic and Jewish worlds, uh, that's, that also helps to bring some unity to this conversation, right? Now, brace yourself lest you get whiplash. Let's go to the end. <clears throat> Paul has a particular way of closing his letters. They are not nearly so formulaic as what we often see in the openings of Paul's letters, but there are some common elements. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to notice with me what Paul does as he closes the book of Ephesians, and I want to I challenge us a little bit. Um, Paul, again refers to himself and his situation. In this case, not so much his authority, but something that might have been pretty distressing to his readers. I mean, Jeremy mentioned in his presentation earlier uh, what it's like to stand in a place and wonder what in the world is God doing? Uh, or, or, is, or is He even active at all? Because this is not the way I expected Him to act. i got to believe there are a lot of people in Ephesus Again, I'm reflecting back on Acts chapter 20 and that conversation he has with the Ephesian elders before he leaves them who are thinking, no, no. You see, Paul works for God and God wins, right? This is not the way this is supposed to go. I don't know why this is so surprising. Didn't we see this with another guy a few years earlier? <coughs> you know, Jesus. Uh, things don't always play out the way that we're thinking that they're going to. So Paul, but Paul seems to anticipate that his captivity and the perceived limiting, now he goes on, as you know, to, to say later, this is not limiting the spread of the gospel. It'll always put me in a new environment. But from their perspective, this seems like a setback. And particularly, if we back off just a little bit and watch what indeed does happen over the next several years, within the next 10 years or so, Paul's life is done. His life ends in Rome. Uh, so this reference to his own situation, he believes, it appears to me, will strengthen his credibility, not weaken it, if properly understood. And so he addresses that. Uh, as it does in the beginning, prayer features prominently in the closing. Uh, he mentions the fact that Tychicus has come to comfort your hearts, reminded early on of how he has reached out to them in the book and, and tried to bring that comfort to them. Uh, grace and peace, he closes the way he begins. In, in this respect, now, I'm about to stretch the use of a technical term, okay? So I want you to understand the difference between what I'm saying and what it might appear that I'm saying. But in this sense, the whole book forms a sort of a chiasm. If you look down this list right here and compare it to this right here, you see all the common elements? Paul ends where he begins, going, coming back to those same kinds of things. And so, you're welcome. I've given you the beginning and the end. All you've got to do is figure out the middle. So, let me think with you about some challenges in preaching this. Let me make sure I understand what time it is here. Oh, there's a clock right there, 11.20. Good. Um, because I do want us to have a, 
a fairly extensive Q&A, not that I've got all the A's, but I, I think the Q's are really important. So I want to spend some time doing that kind of thing. But just I just went through the book of Ephesians. And, it, and, uh, and I just, with a red pen, and when I read through something, I thought, I bet people have got questions about that. I just underlined that and put a number by it for each chapter. And so I'm reading here uh, verse 4. Got to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He goes on verse 5. He predestined us to adoption. Verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. Do you reckon anybody's got any questions about that? Listen, here's my, I'll go ahead and tell you my point of this particular slide before we get very far in. If you preach Ephesians and you don't ask, answer people's questions, you've done them a disservice. Now, I, I understand that the book is not really about these questions. Um, and, and you want to spend the bulk of your time communicating the message that the book sets out to communicate. Don't let yourself be distracted by the details on some of these areas or the, the I mean, some of the, I am fully persuaded that Before that little thing that Martin Luther did, Jeremy, uh, uh, before, the, before John Calvin and the emergence of what we have probably much to Calvin's chagrin referred to as Calvinism, uh, before that, people probably had a whole lot less questions about what predestination meant than they do now. But we don't live at that time. We live now. And so our preaching needs to include references to how we need to understand some of these kinds of things. Now, you can handle that in one of two ways as you preach it. One way is you can say, uh, I'll come back to that later, uh, and do a sermon on, you know, in the midst of your series or at the conclusion of your series. You could, do, you could do a sermon on predestination. But Paul put it right in here. He embedded that. And I think it's important not because it's a false doctrine that needs to be addressed, but because it's a true doctrine that needs to be expressed. Right? People need to understand what it means that God chose us. Paul thought it was important enough to mention it four times in the first chapter. So our preaching needs to include these kinds of things. What does it mean that we're chosen? What does it mean to be chosen? See, there's so much about the language of that that we're uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with the idea of predestination, but, predestination, but we've, we've, got, we've got stuff on that. Right? We think we can, we can address that so that that false doctrine cannot stand. But there's still an awful lot of chosenness language in Scripture that we ought to own and accept, reclaim even. And so we need to come and talk about what that means. And that's, that's a key element as Paul opens this book, a key element for understanding what it means to be the people of God. And so that needs to be something that not only we address as a false doctrine that must be uh, opposed, but also as a true doctrine that needs to be adequately appreciated. Uh, I've already talked about mystery. Uh, 1.13, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You guys have heard of the Holy Spirit, right? I confess to you, I, while I don't believe that we shortchanged the brotherhood nearly as much in relation to grace when I was younger as people have accused us of, I do think we were really uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we reduced His activity in the world to a brief moment from the day of Pentecost 
until somewhere around, depends on whether or not you take the earlier late date of the book of Revelation, let's give you the benefit of the doubt, A.D. 96. He was never heard from neither before nor since. Untrue. Uh, now, I will say this. <clears throat> I started to say famously, but I don't do anything enough to be famous for it. Uh, but I have said, I think I can tell you from Scripture what the Holy Spirit does. I can't always tell you how He does it. So I'm just going to stay in the, in the what business related to the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us some things that the Holy Spirit does. And we need to, we need to praise God for that. We need, to, uh, be, we need to get comfortable talking about Him as a person, as a co-equal member of the divine Godhead, uh, and, and, and reclaim the Holy Spirit. I think we've let the Pentecostals have Him long enough. He's, he's our God. Okay? And we don't have to claim that He's doing anything that the Bible doesn't say He's doing in order to have a really well-developed pneumatology. And so let's, uh, let's talk about what that does mean. What does it mean that He is a seal or an earnest or a deposit? Uh, enlightenment. <clears throat> we live in a time where people are uncertain. Uh, should we live in a... All my life, we've lived in a time where people were uncertain if they could actually understand the Bible for themselves. They had been told by many uh, that, uh, that you had to have help to understand the Bible, that, it, that the things of, of Scripture were too deep, and you didn't have the training or the expertise to do that. Uh, one author refers to um, sermon preparation in this way. He refers to the black box of exegesis, right? So, you know, we're standing over the black box and we put some things in there and then we, we pull the curtain back. Ta-da! Here's the meaning. And what we've done inadvertently is say to the listeners, you can't do that, but don't worry. I'm here. Our job is to teach people how to derive meaning from Scripture, not to derive meaning from Scripture for them. We will create a group of stunted Christians in terms of their growth if we persuade them that we are the ones who've got the magic box. We want to help them understand how to interact with Scripture. Yes, your training and preparation and experience matters. Uh, I t I'm teaching this preaching class right now, and I'm unwilling to share with the students the difference between the number of hours that it took me to pre prepare a lesson 40 years ago and the number of hours it takes me to prepare a lesson right now. I don't want to discourage them. Uh, <clears throat> but they come together a lot faster now because of the training experience that I have. Everybody's got to go through a process like that. They can get better, but we can get better at this. And people can read the Bible and understand it for themselves. And you want to help them as opposed to this kind of sense of, uh, enlightenment, that so either that the Holy Spirit's going to come in in some way outside of Scripture and help you to understand something you couldn't understand, as if God was a really bad writer, we're going to have to give Him some help. Uh, or that we, our own version of enlightenment is simply going to a school somewhere. What we want to show is that God tells a group of Ephesian Christians who are first-generation Christians for the most part and who have had none of that training that you can understand that God has enlightened us through His Word. Um, who in the world? Got to be Satan, right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of language in Scripture that, um, that could be either misunderstood or could be uh, mis, 
appreciated, for lack of a better term. Um, how, can we, how can we draw a balance between recognizing the power of Satan without conferring omnipotence on him? Right? We don't have another really bad version of God out there. He's different. He's weaker. He's less. He, he doesn't get it. But he's powerful. And so how do we, how do we talk about Satan, the prince of the power there? Uh, this is a big one right here. I already talked to one about that. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5. There's all these ones there. One of them is baptism. I can read about at least three or four different kinds of baptism in the New Testament. Now, what we want to say is, yeah, but all that was over with by this time. Okay. But can we, we need to talk about those kinds of things, right? We need, to, we need to explain how it is that God has in mind something that emerges out of a variety of different situations and comes into a unification related to all of these kinds of things. So what is our one baptism? Let's talk some about that. Um, when I teach uh, anything related to theology, and particularly the area of pneumatology, one of the things that I say is, I need you to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. Right? Um, you know, it was already a problem before Star Wars. You know, when the Force came. And all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of people thought, wait a minute, I get it. The Holy Spirit's a force. He's the force. No, He's not. He's not. That makes it worse rather than better. He is a person. And that means He can do what persons do. He can make decisions. He can care about things. And that means I can hurt His feelings. I can hurt Him. It's one of the great powerful truths of Scripture, in my judgment, that human beings, weak and pitiful as we are, have the capacity to hurt God. You th we think about him as so self-contained, right? He's above all that. But the Bible does not describe him that way in any of his three divine persons. Father, Son, or Spirit. We can hurt him. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so what, what would do that? I mean, I think we need to talk about those kinds of things. I want people to have a person. Okay, I was thinking about this on the, in the car on the way down here. Uh, I understand that some of the language that has emerged in evangelical Christianity over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, maybe a little longer than that, things like uh, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that's also very anachronistic. In a collectivistic culture like first century Judaism, the idea of adopting a personal Savior would have sounded absolutely outrageous, particularly against the backdrop of what they were expecting from the Savior, and that is the restoration of the people of Israel. Now, they were wrong about a lot of that, but they certainly wouldn't think they were expecting a personal Savior to show up and just be their little buddy. Uh, so, we need to recognize that reality. At the same time, we need to recognize that it is personal in the sense that there is something that I as an individual can do which will have hurtful effect on God. I need to care about it in that way. I don't want to hurt Him. I love Him. When we grow to love him, we, we will feel the same way about him when we feel about anybody we love. I don't want to hurt him. Acapella music, obviously, in chapter 5, verse 19. I think the most important lesson I want to emphasize right here about that is you realize, right, that that was not what Paul was talking about there? Now, it's not, it's not wrong, the things that we say about that particular text, but that is, that's just a, that's excising a particular thing and divorcing it from its context. God help us. I think we can do better without giving up on 
the authority we have in Scripture for acapella music. Okay? I practice it. I believe it. I believe to not practice acapella music is displeasing to God. Please hear me on that. But I want us to handle that text responsibly. Uh, so, we need to do that. And by the way, you understand, right, that a lot of people in, in the churches of Christ have essentially given up on this. It's not even anything worth talking about anymore. Even those who don't practice instrumental music think it'd be fine. They just don't want to hurt everybody else's feelings. They don't understand why this is a matter of concern. Some of them don't. Some of them have made it into Exhibit A. It's the litmus test of faithfulness. Other people on the completely opposite end of the spectrum have said, it's no big deal as long as we can agree to disagree or as long as I don't hurt somebody's feelings. So how do we handle that responsibly? This gives us an opportunity to have that conversation in a way that honors what Paul's wanting to do here in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> you, you, did you notice the way I phrased this next one? Marriage or the church? I gotta confess, I'm confused. Um, in Ephesians 5, is it, is it marriage we're talking about? Or is it church? Even Paul uh, acknowledges that tension there, right? Somebody over here said yes. Okay, that's a great answer. All right? Uh, but anytime you use an illustration, shouldn't you have the thing to be illustrated and the thing that does the illustrating? Isn't that how illustration works? Uh, we take something that's maybe a little bit ambiguous or unclear, and we take something that is considerably more clear, and we lay those two things alongside of one another, and we understand the unclear thing better as a result of having under, uh, our pre-existing understanding of the clear thing, right? And then we got what Paul does here. I'm going to have to go with my brother who said yes over here in the end, because I do think it's the case, at least for some people, understanding how a marriage works helps us to understand the church better. On the other hand, there are folks whose experience in marriage has not been so positive and who might need to see how Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. And that's what really illustrates what marriage is supposed to look like. So whichever way you want to handle that, Paul allows that tension and ambiguity to exist without, without smoothing everything over. And maybe we need to do that as well, but there's a, there's a couple of, at least a couple of great conversations. I've never done this. I wonder what it might be like to preach two sermons, not on the same day, don't panic, church, uh, preach two, two sermons, one of which is, one of which works its way through Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and following, and talks about marriage on the basis of what the church is like. Jesus as the bridegroom of the church. And then another sermon that talks about the church on the basis of what marriage is like. Take the same text and approach that from those two different perspectives. I don't it may, it may be terrible. I've just thought about it uh, because it, it works well to do either of those things. Ooh, here's a big one. You notice I skipped right over raising kids because I don't have any idea how to deal with that. I might have grown and I didn't kill them, so. <laughs> Count that as a win. Okay? Uh, but, you know, Paul has, like all the other New Testament writers essentially, the audacity to talk to slaves and masters and call them to holiness and in relationship. And he stops short of what we want him to do. I'm just telling you, he stops short of what I want him to do. 
I won't even tell those brothers. Say, Listen, what in the world do you think? You really think that you can be obedient to God? You can follow the example of Christ and still own those other humans? I want him to I want him to deal with that head on. I want abolition in that text. Paul doesn't do that. He regulates to some degree a process, something that's in existence at that time. And though, though I don't like it, I don't like the way, maybe I'd like to have something a little more here. Maybe I need to say, okay, but what does he do? What does he do? And so it gives us an opportunity to talk about what that looks like and to address the realities of our world, uh, to acknowledge and uh, affirm the principles from Scripture which ultimately have, a, they have the effect of killing injustice, including this one. And so we need to, we need to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, read a book here several years ago, uh, Gregory Boyd, uh, God at War. Right? It's, it's a long and drawn out read, but it is a good reminder of the fact that we live in a world which is involved in spiritual warfare. And Paul uh, connects to that. Uh, it, it seems to, he's never really very far away from, from seeing himself involved in that spiritual warfare. We need to talk about that as well. I think we have a sort of reductionist mentality uh, where we, uh, we, we think about spiritual things as very separate from physical manifestations. And again, I'm not arguing we've got angels and demons hovering all around us or anything like that. What I'm saying is uh, the statement that he makes that our, our, our fight is not against flesh and blood can help us in two ways. First of all, it helps us to think more like spiritual people, which we desperately need. And second of all, I think it could have the result of preventing some of the physical fighting. I don't mean war. I'm talking about relational sorts of things that we have among us, where we, we, we seem way too quick to rush to, rush to arms. And uh, Paul thinks about something going on that's so much bigger than him, of which we're all a part as spiritual people. Uh, <clears throat> praying in the Spirit. What in the world? I read in the Spirit. But do I pray in the Spirit? You know, the thing, okay, I'm about to say something I'm aware that may offend some people. But, and I don't mean to brag, but I'm really good at offending people. And so I've kind of gotten used to it. Um, I grew up um, with this sense that the Holy Spirit worked through the Word and only through the Word, and that anything else was heresy. Uh, You'd think I'd have noticed Romans 8.26 before. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, it was just laying there. And uh, i got to figure out some way of understanding the work of the Holy Spirit that allows Him to be involved in my prayer. I have now told you everything I understand about that. <laughs> but I'm just going to trust that if I will open my heart to what God wants to do in all three of his persons that the Holy Spirit knows how to help me in my prayers whether I know how he's going to do it or not. Amen. Okay? So, 
if you're not there, if, you, if you're in a different place who, who you believe the Holy Spirit works only through the Word, you can talk to me afterwards and I, I love you. But I, I don't know. I can't, I can't. That caused me to go back and revisit some of those kinds of things. At very least, I've got to figure out something to do with Ephesians 6.18. You know, do I allow the Spirit of God to be involved in every area of my life, including the way I approach the throne of the Heavenly Father? Um, Jesus seemed to think that was going to be a thing in John chapters 14 through 16. He talked an awful lot about that. And yes, it's certainly true that the Holy Spirit was going to do something for those men gathered who were his closest associates, the apostles, that was not going to be done for everybody. But this book was written considerably later than that, and Paul's still telling people to do it. So, now, I said all that to remind us as we go along through our study of the book of Ephesians uh, to, to let the text speak to these concerns and to be courageous in addressing them. It's okay if you, you guys occasionally do that in Bible class or whatever you'll say. It's outside the scope of this study to address this particular issue. Okay. Well, it is. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to say sometimes because there's a, sometimes you want to stay on mission. But, one of our missions is to help people understand Scripture and to understand and feel that they can. And so address these things as you go along in appropriate ways. Uh, be careful about observing the Passover too often in terms of these, uh, these challenging issues. All right, so this is my last slide. This is the last thing I want to say today. I can't even remember what time I'm supposed to quit, but probably a long time ago. Can I just suggest that one of the things I want to do, this is something that I've started doing anytime I want to engage a particular text. I, I want to ask myself, how can I respect this text? Um, Abraham Kuruvila, some of you guys are familiar with his work, privileged the text, the name of one of his, as a matter of fact, my, my belief is it's his best book. Uh, but he uh, simply affirms the reality that the biblical authors are doing something with the text. He uses this illustration. If I'm standing right, I'm in a crowd of people right here, Andrew's standing next, right next to me, and he steps on my foot, I would say to Andrew, Andrew, you're standing on my foot. Now, that's simply an informational statement, right? Why did I say it? I want him to get off. I don't want him just to know that he's on it. I want him to get off. Uh, all biblical texts have a mission. These biblical books were written because there's something that the author wants to do using that text. And so, how can we respect that? First of all, I would suggest if we're going to respect Ephesians, we must exalt Christ in his church. He must be seen as the head of a real body. And we are a part of that body. Second of all, I think we need to respect Paul's structure. Um, you know, Jeremy mentioned the fact that sometimes his structure is very different than ours. And as, as linear, western, modern, post-enlightenment thinkers, we are accustomed to that kind of very orderly sort of Paul doesn't always do that. But I told you earlier we'd come back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. What a masterpiece that brief section of Scripture is. To describe the human condition without Christ, dead, disobedient. By the way, even the order of that challenges me. Don't we die spiritually because we're disobedient? Not in Paul. Not in Ephesians 2. He says... You were dead, so of course you disobeyed. You couldn't do anything right. I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. The dead person never did anything. You could command them all you wanted. 
They can't do it. They're dead. That's the way Paul describes us. We're not just, of course, there's a circular reality there, but we're not just dead because we're disobedient. We're disobedient because we're dead. Dead people can only do so much, and laying there is just about it. Then, because of that, we're doomed. By the way, that alliterates really well. Did you notice? Dead, disobedient, doomed. Um, not big on alliteration at this stage of my life, but nonetheless, it happens. Then there's that pivotal moment where Paul, you can almost, you can almost see him whisper it, can't you? But God, but God, because of the great love with which he's loved us, has quickened us and raised us up to be seated with him in the heavenly places. Notice that verses 6 and 7 are the antidote to verses 1 through 3. That's Paul's structure. And then he's able to say almost an exclamation, by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So note Paul's structure. That's just one example. You can see it all over the place. But respect his sometimes inductive approach uh, rather than the standard inductive approach that many of us were accustomed to, to thinking about how Scripture develops. Connect all lifestyle decisions to the character and work of God. We talked about that earlier. If, you, if you're not doing that, if, people, if you tell somebody to do something and they don't think, yes, because God, then you've left something important out. Preach from the heart. This was hard for me. My wife, I, I've joked before that I thought I had a feeling one time, but I waited a few minutes and it passed. I'm not, I'm not an emotional kind of person. I don't cry at movies. I, I don't even feel bad when I see those dogs on those commercials that are going to be I didn't do it, I promise. I'm very, I'm very task-oriented, and I just, I, now, I don't. now, the older I get, the more susceptible to moments of emotion that I have become, especially related to my kids. And, and sometimes powerful ideas cause something strange to happen to me as I become emotional about an idea. That's me. But, and so because of that, much of my preaching historically has been, okay, well, here are the facts of the matter. And here are the conclusion of the matter. Now, don't you think you should do that too? And uh, we see, again, as I mentioned before, in Paul, these eruptions of closeness to God or awareness of powerful realities or concern and compassion for people he's never met. To think. It, a guy can say, I would give up, I would spend the rest of my life in hell if I could save all Jews. You there? Nope, me either. I mean, this, that's not a logical thing to say, given what Paul knows about how salvation takes place. It's something that he feels. And he allows that to emerge in the way that he talks about this. If he does, so also that. And then, guys, I'll stop right here and then we'll pray. Give people things to pray about. See, Paul, throughout this book of Ephesians, he, he prays at the beginning and then in the middle he's got another prayer there. And at the end he said, hey, by the way, pray for me that I may be emboldened. I'm trying to think, what does a bold Paul look like? Right? Bolder than he already is. But give people something to pray about. Uh, help them to understand how the lesson for today connects to what they ought to be praying about this week. Because there's nothing that we do that engages us with the power of God more than taking our concerns to Him. Uh, several years ago, some of you guys were aware of it. it was Dallas Willard, who has the book Praying the Bible. 
um, and you work your way through a text of scripture. You just pray those things as they apply to your situation. Uh, I think if we handle the book of Ephesians in that way, we'll not be far from where Paul was when he wrote it. He's thinking about these things and how taking those things before God will change that situation and the world. All right. Let me stop right there. Um, questions that I won't be able to answer. How, how do you guys handle this? And what, what did I overlook? Yes, sir. I just had one question, just wanting to, I guess, kind of a, to better understand what you meant. You know, just looking at the introduction to, you know, the book of Ephesians, and you uh, said that it, uh, it doesn't appear to be a corporate letter. So just maybe a few more words on that to help me kind of grasp that. Well, what I mean by that, my, my, uh, my perception is that all of the letters written by the Apostle Paul got shared to the degree that they, they could be just because people understood them for what they were. Even Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture, right, in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. So there's clearly a building awareness that that's something that everybody needed to hear about. And likewise, of course, they are corporate in the sense that you and I continue to learn from them, but as opposed to Galatians, for example, which was, you know, as a regional missive, this one's, this one's more directed specifically to the Ephesian church, and there's no instruction to do all the sharing that we sometimes see uh, across those boundaries. So that's all I mean by that. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Listen, one of the most flattering times in my life is when I ask people if I have any questions and they don't. Because given my arrogance, I naturally assume that I've done such a great job that no questions are made. Listen, sarcasm, English is my second language, sarcasm is my first. Uh, what about the claim that this letter may not have been written to the Ephesians at all, that it's written to somebody else? Well, as you know, it's based on two things. The first is that in some textual, uh, some manuscripts, to the Ephesians is not present. So in, in that sense, it could have been uh, uh, anonymous, some people would suggest. And the second thing is, uh, you know, 19th century uh, theology, German theology basically questioned everything. Uh, and so you put those things together along with a certain skepticism that's not uncommon. You can, you can certainly make that argument. Uh, the book is, okay, I started to say incredibly well accepted. Uh, and, and that's true, but as you well know, I mean, I remember the first time I went to a, a theological conference and found out that people didn't think a lot of these books were written by the Apostle Paul or that they weren't written to the particular audiences and things like that. So. Uh, so yeah, is, are, is, there a, is there an argument to be made for the fact that Ephesians is not intended to be what uh, directed particularly that is fine, but we've got a lot of great manuscripts that have got that uh, appellation on it, so I don't have a, somebody else might want to speak to that who's better than I in terms of uh, evaluating those sorts of things, but there's sufficient evidence for my sake, for my investigation. I like your suggestions. You know, I know you don't want to bore people to death as a preacher. I'm no, a, no, I'm I a teacher, not a preacher, so I'm able to do this in a Bible class. But for preachers, make issues like you talked about with slavery and then the spiritual warfare in heavenly realms. Those could be answered by explaining the huge differences between Greco-Roman slavery and North American Caribbean slavery in the 18th, 19th century, and Paul's apocalyptic worldview, the Jewish apocalyptic worldview that they did believe. 
there was a spiritual war going between forces of good and evil. How can you do that as a preacher and not put the audience? To, I could put the audience to sleep in class, but how do you guys as preachers? How do you guys as preachers try to make them? They're easier to talk about when you explain those things. But how do you do that in such a way that you don't, as you said earlier, put people to sleep? In? Uh, you're giving preachers a lot of credit, brother. If you look down and see me, people are sleeping during our service. <laughs> well, I mean, I catch a few Z's my Um But it would be helpful, I guess, for the audience. You do have a bigger audience than we have typically in our Bible classes for right. people who go speak to us. Yeah. Now, first of all, I would say absolutely you need to take advantage of that very phenomenon that you're describing. When you've got 500 people as opposed to 35 people, in your class, that's if there's something that's important and powerful, you need to allow, you need to take advantage of that moment. Uh, you don't want to abuse it, but you want to take advantage of it. And so, I'll speak only for me. I think it's uh, my my judgment on the matter is that uh, you need to provide. First of all, you need to talk about things that matter. And for example, the issue of slavery matters, and you don't want to explain it away and say. Well, this had nothing to do with what we're talking about. It was still an abuse of human beings and what principles emerge out of there. So I might, if I were in that situation, I might say, uh, generally speaking, this, by the way, you cannot establish that this is universally true, but generally speaking, uh, slavery was not a racial phenomenon when Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Uh, it's, more, it's, a, it's more of a, a function of socioeconomic power. Uh, it's a, a function of... Uh, of uh, conquered peoples and things like that. Uh, the Jews had their own regulation system for how uh, servants could be in, uh, put in spots like that. But if I'm in my I'm, I'm audience right now and I'm hearing me say that, I'm going to say, okay, so what? I think you could talk about today's slavery in those same terms, right? You've got conquered peoples. You've got people who are being abused and treated despitefully. Uh, You've got the impact of that in a broader population. So I think uh, what you don't want to do is to explain those things away. You want, to, you want to explain why maybe it is that Paul doesn't address their situation identically to the way we might feel the need to respond to our situation today. But you want to use those principles to be able to address real life issues. And so I'm going to give them just enough of the, uh, of the historical and cultural material to keep us focused on the matters at hand. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't, as I said, observe the Passover in that regard, but I don't want to hijack that either such that nobody believes it applies to them after we get finished with the sermon. Mark? Yes, Lance? Uh, Paul uses the term heavenlies or heavenly places. What's your brief understanding of mm, that phrase? Good question. I think you were right to characterize my understanding of that as brief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... You know, you know how it is. Words have meaning in usage, right? Which means they can have incredibly broad semantic range, which is part of the reason why you're asking the question, because it can be understood in a variety of different ways. And I would argue uh, that Paul, Paul may not even always use the same word in exactly the same way in different places. So the key to understanding how that's used is in context, right? And so you ask yourself, what's the flow of thought that's taking place in that section? What is, what is Paul seeking to call us to? And given his, uh, given his more general use of uh, some of the other things that were on the previous slide, for example, like the work of Satan, 
uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual forces in the heavenlies and stuff, seems to be applying to that, uh, that arena within which that spiritual battle is taking place. It's not certainly, in my judgment, not a synonym for heaven where God lives, but it's more about that larger arena, but that's, that's just a judgment that I make from the context. The spiritual realm of that's, that's what I would suggest we're talking about. I could be wrong. I'm wrong about many things. Are we done? Hey, guys, let me, if you don't mind, go ahead, Craig. I was just going to say, one question that I've always had, as it look, Ephesians 4, 11, as it talks about Christ in the body, um, Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, etc. Um, obviously, we look at that and we think, all right, does the New Testament church just pick, for, for us today, pick up with the evangelist, pastor, etc.? Mm -hmm. Or is it possible that in the broader sense of that's not necessarily the 12 or the eventual 14, whatever, but the, the reality of we are one cent, they're the more mission, missionary type right. in that context, or not prophets with a specific message, but we are, in a sense, mouthpieces of the Word of God. Yeah. Let me play some language games with that. Uh, first of all, uh, I think there needs to be an appreciation fact that the organizational structure of the church came to us from the Lord Himself. I mean, that's what, that's what Paul claims here. Paul didn't say, I set up all these offices, including the Lord. He says, gee, the Lord gave us this. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, and I appreciate what you said here, you guys are probably aware that the, uh, the closest near synonym for missionary in the New Testament, by the way, where missionary does not appear in, in the New Testament, is the word for apostle, the one sent with a commission, right? And so in that sense, while we don't have apostolic authority and miraculous power that that group of apostles had, we still have, in the other sense of the word, apostles. Okay. Uh, likewise with prophets. We have tended to so closely associate prophets with foretelling, no, foretelling, excuse me, that we've forgotten that the primary mission of a prophet is to, for, is to foretell, uh, to serve as a mouthpiece for God in a particular situation. You guys got any of that going on in your congregations? I hope you do. I hope you have it every Sunday morning. Uh, so, so yes, I think, Chuck, you're right that we need to appreciate the fact that what, um, what Paul is doing there is to, describing, is to describe functions that the church will always need, but not to make the mistake of assigning everything that might fit in that box to all time periods. For example, we still have apostolic work going on today as we are sent on our missions, but we do not have the 12's capacity to perform miracles and things like that. So I don't think it has to be an either-or kind of thing. I think we can use those words in ways that honor their intentions. Remember this, always. The words that we see in the New Testament are not Bible words. They already existed. The biblical authors, by inspiration, appropriated them and used them to describe these powerful spiritual realities. So the words already existed. They could be used differently then and they could be used appropriately now as well. Good question. All right, let me lead us in a prayer and we'll close this section out. Father, thank you so much for giving us the book of Ephesians. And our brother Paul and the lofty way that he extols your virtue both in identity and work. Father, we believe in you in that way. And we want this world to know you. And because they know you, we want to instruct them how they can please you. And we're grateful for your church 
and the gathered people who care about what you care about. We pray that you will use us for your glory. We're thankful for the majestic Christ who continues to work along with your spirit in ways that lead to our redemption and sanctification. We pray that you'll bless us as we preach that message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.